0: pray, the things that we pray about, it really says a lot about us. It says a lot about our church, and it says a lot about our relationship with God. Last week, we kind of started into a series where we were. Um, talking about the church in the very first century there, and we were kind of drawing upon uh, the story there in the book of Acts and how the very first church uh, in the very first century, how they kind of functioned and started as a church. And last week, we kind of focused on that opening day of the local church. Church. And we looked at that uh, recorded piece of history that Luke gives us there in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And we kind of made this observation last week um, how the local church kind of started as a movement, as an ecclesia. And we talked about that word ecclesia. It's a group, Greek word, and, and it really kind of meant church. It was really kind of understood as a gathering, an assembly, uh, a congregation. And we talked about how that very first church in the very first century that Jesus came to launch and to give birth to, and how they focused, they were unified around a very, very simple, yet a very profound, a very powerful message. And that message was that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It was that very simple message yet powerful profound message that galvanized them into a community and that really propelled the mission and the focus of the very first church and as they went forth and shared that very simple profound message they called people to come and to just to be a follower of Jesus to learn the things that he taught, and then just to become obedient to that. But you know what happened over time? The church got buildings. The church got organized. They had to get organized. The church needed organization. There's nothing wrong with that. And then there kind of began to come a hierarchy. And then people got in control. And it wasn't long before they realized that they could take this message and they could actually use it to control and to manipulate people. And before, you know, everything kind of just got really crazy and off focus. Before long, this outwardly focused movement that was all about the message of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. That simple, powerful, profound message to go out and to share that with those who didn't know, those who hadn't heard. They would go and say, we just want you to know that Jesus, the Son of God, was born. He lived. He died for your sins. He was resurrected from the dead, and he sent the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, his believers, so that we could go forth and be his witnesses throughout the world, to bring the kingdom of God upon the earth. This outwardly focused mission message suddenly began to transition and turn to become an insider-focused church and mission There came a time where that outward movement began to transition into an insider movement where it became less about those on the outside, those who didn't know, those who hadn't heard, and it started to become more about those who were on the inside. We became more concerned about those who were there than those who needed to come. And one of the things I've learned over the years having pastored for a while is churches make this transition from outsider, outward focused to inward focused, inward concerned very quickly. And in most cases, they weren't planning on it. It's not intentional. They didn't even realize it was happening In fact, I'll tell you this, the gravitational pull of every local church from the beginning till now is always back toward the insiders, back toward the members, back toward the attendees, back towards those who are here than those who need to come. And churches become very, very self-centered, self-focused very, very quickly, and the vast majority of people don't even realize it's happening. When you think about every other organization that exists, they mainly exist for and cater to those who belong and are members. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the very building we bought that now houses Praise Community Church, used to be the Elks Club. And their organization focused on and catered to its members. Every organization really exists for that purpose. But the church that Jesus came to launch was very different. It had a very different mission, a very different focus. And that was for those on the inside who had heard the message that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. God has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us, to empower us, to go out and to impact the culture. To go out and to change the community. To bring the kingdom of God upon the earth. And when churches make this transition from being outsider-focused to insider-oriented, you know what happens? We tend to really start getting really judgmental towards those on the outside as well as those on the inside. And we kind of begin to develop this holier-than-thou attitude. That's what happens when our focus should be out there, but it's really in here. When you look at the very first church in the very first century, the church that Jesus came to launch there in the book of Acts, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. In fact, the book of Acts says in Jerusalem, even though there was a lot of tension and turmoil around Jesus and all of the stuff that went with that. It said there in the book of Acts that the Christians in Jerusalem had tremendous favor with the people, those on the outside, because there was something unusual, something unique, remarkable, winsome, attractive about those Christians in that very first century who were a part of that first church. And because of that, Acts says that the very first church in the very first century got big quickly. So today I want to kind of just transition from that opening day, that big first day for the first church there in Acts, and I want to look at it and I want to talk about the big prayers that the church there in Acts prayed because I believe there is something there for us to learn and to be reminded of. Now, before we get to that very first church in the very first century and how they prayed, I want to just briefly look at prayer in the church today. Prayer in the life of the average Christian. And let me start just by asking you this question. If you have ever looked at the prayer request, maybe that, you have given or written out on your card, maybe you're a part of the prayer team and you've looked at those cards that people fill out in our church and submit to us to pray for. If you were to look at that list, what would the prayer request that you see there, what would it tell you about our church? Let me just give you a phrase as it relates to this question. How a church prays indicates whether that church has strayed. How a church prays, the things that comprise the prayer list of a church is a very good indicator of whether that church has strayed. Now, I know it sounds corny, but there's an element of truth to it. How a church prays really indicates whether that church has strayed from its biblical mandate if all the prayer requests are simply for the people who attend here. If there are no prayers for people outside of the church, for the non-believers, it could be a very strong indicator that we're off track here. But there's nothing wrong with praying for people who attend here. What I'm saying is it needs to be balanced with the needs and the focus of those who are outside, those who have yet to hear the message of the gospel. When you only pray for people who attend, when you only pray for members, those that are already here, it is an indication that the church has probably become insider focused and it won't be long before we we lose our vision, our passion, our focus to impact the lost outside these walls for the kingdom of God. When we are praying more for the needs of those inside these walls, for example, the salvation of those outside the walls, again, it may be an indicator that we're drifting more and more toward an in cider mentality, which runs contrary to the church Jesus came to launch in the very first century. And let's look at our own prayer lives. Think for a moment about the things you pray about. The average Christian, for the most part, I mean, we're all guilty of this. Sometimes we just find ourselves praying for ourselves again, there's nothing wrong with praying. We pray for our family. We maybe pray for two or three sick people. And that's how most Christians pray. And again, there's nothing wrong with praying for those needs. And we need to be praying for those needs. The problem is, is for most of us, that is where our prayer life ends. We never seem to get beyond ourselves. And our needs. In fact, just a wild guess here. If God had answered all of your prayers last year, I mean the ones that you really have been intentional about praying for, maybe you pray for this week after week after week. If God had answered all of your prayers last year, for most of us, the only person that would probably be better off is us, and maybe a family member or two. You see, my concern, and I think Jesus' concern, would be that self-centered, self-focused prayers, when you get them all together inside of a church building, After a while, we're going to start acting and sounding like self-centered, self-focused Christians. And what happens is this once incredibly outward-focused movement that Jesus came to launch becomes insider-focused. When that happens, you know what? This church just kind of becomes a building And we just kind of become church people, and we just do church things for a lot of people. Other people just finally get on your nerves enough that you kind of just saunter out the front door and just want to go find a different church. To be church people and to do church things. My guess, my hope here this morning is I think all of us want something bigger and different and better. I think a lot of us are looking for something a little closer to what Jesus came to launch there in the very first century. So big churches on God's big mission, pray Big, bold prayers. And I want to challenge you, and I want to challenge me. Let's start praying bigger prayers. I want to begin to pray the kind of prayers they prayed there in the very first church, in the very first century. So this morning, I want to just show you how the first church, the first Christians, prayed. And before I get to that, I just want to kind of set this up, kind of give you a little bit of context. We talked about it a little bit last week. Holy Spirit comes, fills the believers, and they're just kind of empowered to go out, and you remember that Peter kind of seizes that opportunity right after being filled with the Holy Spirit, and he kind of just begins to move from that place. He goes to the temple, and you have to remember that the temple is the epicenter of ancient Judaism. That epicenter is where, in the minds of the Jews, this is where God dwells. And Peter and John are Jews, they're also now Christians, so they go to the temple to pray. But now they're going to the temple as Christians, they're followers of Jesus, and they're going into the temple, and Peter and John, they're traveling together, and as they're going to the temple, they walk past a guy who has been lame from birth. Now, we don't use that word lame the way that they did back in those days. My kids tell me I'm lame, uh, you know, or my attempt at humor is lame, meaning it was a weak, really feeble attempt at trying to be funny, Dad, you're so lame. But Peter and John, they come upon this man, and the scripture says he's lame from birth. He's been unable to walk his whole life. This guy is a beggar. And as Peter and John walk by him, the guy is holding out his hand. He's begging for money. That's how he survives. It's how he gets by day to day. And Peter and John, they they make that very infamous statement. Silver and gold have we not, but such as we have, we give unto you. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus. And no sooner had they said this, This man, lame from birth, begins to stand and he begins to walk and he follows Peter and John into the temple as they go. And there's other people in there, and all of a sudden they see this man, lame from birth, walking with Peter and John, and they're taken back. They're astonished. They're amazed. I recognize that guy, I know who that guy is. I walk by him every day to and from the temple. He's lame, but now he's walking. This is incredible. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. I know this guy. And all of a sudden, there just kind of comes a passion and an energy in the temple. Now, it was one thing, you know, for Peter to kind of create chaos and havoc out in the streets. But you're bringing that now into the temple, the epicenter of the Jewish culture? Have you no respect? Have you no dignity? Where do you get off doing this? So, everybody begins to gather around. They're looking to see what's going on. They're amazed at this guy who walks. And Peter just can't help himself. He seizes that opportunity and he begins to preach a sermon right there in the temple. He's a fisherman. He's not a priest. He's not a scholar. He's not a religious authority. What right do you have, fishermen, to come into the holy, sacred temple of God, much less creating the havoc you're creating? Now you want to start preaching to us. So he preaches a sermon, and in the middle of that sermon, he mentions a word that just set the religious people off. He started talking about the resurrection. Luke tells us there in Acts that by the end of Peter's sermon, over 5,000 men had become Christians in the city of Jerusalem that day. You had the original 3,000, the opening day of the big church there. These 5,000, and the scripture says hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men, women, and children over the course of several days were added to the church there in Jerusalem. So you have about 10% of the city of Jerusalem. They are turning their attention and their focus to this new teaching this new religion, this new belief about Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. And you have from that this big energy and passion and the temple priests are watching it all unfold. And they're like, you have no permission, you have no right, you have no authority to come into this place and to preach that message. Go back to your boats. Go back to fishing. Leave the preaching, the teaching to the educated, the sophisticated, the dignified. Go back to your boat. Go back to doing what you were doing before Jesus came. Not to mention the religious leaders already felt a little picked on because peppered in all of Peter's sermons. He talked about how they were the ones, the religious leaders, they were the ones that crucified him. And Peter would tell them a lot, oh yeah, in case you forgot, in case you didn't remember, you were the ones who crucified him. So with all of this happening, they decide the only thing that they can do with Peter and John is they arrest them and they throw them in jail for the night. Let's see if that just doesn't cool your jets. They remember word spreads throughout the city. They were preaching in the temple. They got arrested. And so, those who were kind of close to Peter and John, you know, kind of the original Jesus posse, the ones that kind of got this whole thing rolling, there's about 120 of them. And they're like, oh, no, man, I, Jesus, and first of all, is crucified. You know, now Peter and John, they're arrested. They could be executed. We may never see them again, and they're kind of just starting to become really scared, and they're just kind of starting to think, worst case scenario here. Next morning, remember the religious leaders, chief priests, brought Peter and John, pulled them out of jail, and said, okay, this thing you were talking about yesterday, this subject, you know, begins with an R. What's the scoop? Peter said, hey, I'm glad you asked. And Peter launches into another sermon to the chief priests, to the religious leaders, about how Jesus was the Son of God. He lived, he died, he was resurrected from the dead. And God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell in us believers, to empower us to go forth and be his witnesses throughout the world. And as Peter kind of concludes this mini-teaching, I want you to notice his final statement to them, his parting words there in Acts 4.12, and he concluded by saying, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I can imagine you're a high priest. You're a Jewish religious leader there in the temple that day. And here's a guy who just got out of jail. Probably smelled like and looked like he'd spent the night in jail. And he's teaching and preaching and lecturing to chief priests, to Jewish scholars, and the problem was kind of the bone in their throat, that lame man was there in the crowd with Peter and John that day, and the religious leaders saw him, knew what had happened to him, and they just didn't know how to respond. So it goes from there, Acts chapter 4, verses 13. It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that these were uneducated, untrained men. They're hicks. I couldn't say that first service, but I can this service. Pastor Mark's last name is Hicks, so... These are untrained, unsophisticated. They're fishermen. What do they know? And they were amazed. Chief priests, the religious leaders, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They they were his disciples. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had. Nothing to say in reply. So they do the next best thing. They say to Peter and John, okay, we're going to let you go on one condition. Shut your mouth. We don't want you talking about Jesus. We don't want you preaching about that R word. Go back to whatever it was you were doing Don't go into the temple anymore. Don't create any more chaos. Just keep your mouth shut. And if you'll keep your mouth shut, we'll let you go and we'll leave you alone. And Peter looks at them, fresh out of jail. And he just says, look, you do what you got to do. But I'm going to do what I've got to do. And we cannot and we will not Stop talking about Jesus, about the resurrection, what we have seen. So Peter and John, they just take off and they go back and they're reunited with this group of other disciples. Mary, James, Bartholomew, Andrew, all of the other disciples. The people that have become followers of Jesus leading up to this and they get with them and everybody is just breathing a sigh of relief. Oh hallelujah, thank you God. And then Luke tells us they pray. I'm going to show you the prayer in just a minute. But I just want to ask you, I mean, given the circumstance leading up to that, if that were you, how would you respond? What would be your reaction? What would be your prayers if you were going to pray having come through the situation and circumstance Peter and John did, how would you pray? They spent the night in jail, barely escaped with their lives. I mean, you almost lost Peter and John. How do you pray? What do you pray about? Today, I think most Christians would pray. Because we're Americans. And and you know the kind of prayers we would pray as Americans? They're basically prayers for protection and safety. Honestly, if that were you, just coming out of jail and you were going to begin to pray, let's be honest, most of our prayers would focus around, God, protect me. God, keep me safe. God, keep me from my enemies. God, put a hedge of protection around me. That's honestly how most of us, probably in this room, including myself, would pray. It's all about our safety. It's all about our protection. God, give me a bigger car. Give me a nicer house. Give me a better job. It's all about us. I want to show you this isn't how they prayed. Here's how the very first Christians in the very first church in the very first century prayed coming out of that circumstance. Beginning in Acts 4, verse 24, and when they heard this, as they're reunited with the disciples, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And what they're doing here is they're just quoting relevant portions of the Old Testament. In other words, what they're trying to express to God through this is God, before we ask for anything, We just want to remind you that we know who we're talking to here. You are sovereign. There is nothing out of your control. There is nothing beyond your ability. Nothing happens without you knowing it, ordaining it. You have created everything. And then it continues in verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, and here they quote Psalm 21, beginning in verse 1. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stands and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, and they mention Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, this is the relevant part. This is the part I want you to see and to hear. Take note of their threats and grant your bond servants May we speak your word with boldness. Whoa, wait, time out here, back up. Boldness? Really? Uh, excuse me, um, but boldness is kind of what got you guys into this mess. Boldness was kind of what got you guys in trouble with the chief priest. Boldness is kind of what got you guys in jail overnight. I mean, isn't boldness kind of what created this antagonistic spirit between you and the religious leaders? I mean, I'm just kind of looking at this from kind of my 2015 perspective and and I'm reading this story and I'm thinking these guys are already kind of bold enough, don't you think? I mean I think you've got boldness pretty well covered here so you're gonna ask for more boldness? Really? How many of you have ever prayed in your life for boldness? When was the last Time you ask God to give you boldness. Is the word even in our 21st century vocabulary? God, give us boldness to speak your word. God, give us boldness to be your witness. God, give us boldness that we can go out and that we can preach and teach the word of God with authority. God, give us boldness that we can go out and usher in the kingdom of God upon this earth. I mean, we pray every once in a while, God, help me to become a, a better Christian. Again, there's nothing wrong with those kinds of prayers. But for a lot of us, that's where it stops. But have you ever prayed for boldness? Have you ever asked God just to enable you to pray for, to speak to, to minister to people who are outside the faith? Have you ever asked God to enable you to use this biblical word, to enable you to speak and to represent him with boldness? I'm not saying pray for weirdness. There's enough of that out there. Boldness. Have you ever considered it? Have you ever thought how very simple, this very powerful, this very profound message, have you ever thought about how did that ever make it out of the first century? How is it that we have the gospel message today? How did it ever get from the first century to this century? I'll tell you how. Because that first century and every century forward prayed for boldness. That's why we have it. We don't even think about it for the most part. I mean, we're more about being politically correct. Oh God, I don't want to be offensive. Boldness, eh, we don't even think about that. Boldness, that was their prayer. Not protection, not safety, not blessings, not prosperity, not a hedge of protection. But boldness was the very first thing they prayed for coming out of that circumstance. You want to know something else? The next thing that they went on to pray for is even more extreme. You're uncomfortable now. Let's turn up the heat. Verse 30. This was their prayer. Give us more boldness and stretch out your hand, Jesus, to heal. Produce manifest signs and wonders that those would take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. Have you ever prayed and asked for that? Have you ever prayed and just said, God, would you not only embolden me, but God, would you also just stretch? forth your hand God would you just begin to do signs and miracles that would testify to your servant your son Jesus Christ so that's weird to a lot of us because Christians and expect we ask for that we're good with that as long as it happens inside these four walls But oh my, what would people think if that ever broke out on the streets around us? What were they asking for? You know what they were asking for? They were asking for God to take them outside their comfort zone, outside their comfortable group, outside their fellowship and they wanted to go out into the community among those who didn't believe, and they wanted just to begin to live their lives and to proclaim the message in such a way that people who didn't believe, people who were skeptical, people who had reason to be skeptical, maybe that, that, that through them, through God working in and through their lives, that those people might actually see and experience something that would cause them to stop and to say, whoa, God just Showed up in my life. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't expecting it. But you said you did something, and God moved in my life. That's what they were asking God to do. What if you began to pray your version of this as a Christian? God, would you take me and God, would you put me in places where people don't believe? God, would you move in me? Would you move in my community of secular friends? Would you move among my unbelieving friends, among my anti-church friends, among my friends that maybe have been burned? by religion, and have every reason in the world not to believe? Would you just move among my friends who think they're so intellectual and so smart? God, would you be willing to use me? God, would you be willing to work through me, to stretch forth your hand and do something unusual? not for my benefit, not in the church. But God, would you do it out there for the benefit of those who don't believe? Now, this is important, especially if you're new to the Bible, new to the Christian faith. For the most part, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders weren't for the sake of the people that the miracles, the signs, and the wonders were performed on. Did you know that? The whole point of healing in the New Testament, wasn't just for the sake of the people that were healed. I mean, they were blessed by it. They were glad it happened. It was a good day for them. Don't get me wrong. The whole point of miracles, of signs, and wonders were so the unbelieving people would go, wow, I saw that. Tell me more about this God you believe in. That was the point. And those disciples, as they met together, they were praying to be able that God would send them forth into their community and to demonstrate the power of God, not for their sake, not for their benefit, but for the sake of the community and the benefit of those who didn't believe. Let me just ask you. Can you imagine What would happen in our church, in our community, if we started praying prayers like that first century church prayed? I'll tell you what happened, how God answered that prayer, because it's how the story wraps up. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. There's that word again. And. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was their own, but all things were common property to them. Not only does the Holy Spirit come, not only does God fill them with boldness, but there is an outbreak of generosity, not just because of a sermon It was just as they became more outsider-focused, as they became more concerned for those on the outside of the faith community, as they began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ with great boldness, there was just an outbreak of extreme generosity. But that's not why they were doing this. I want us to be a big church that has a big focus and a big mission and prays big, bold prayers. I want us to be a church that learns by God's grace to leverage our bigness for the sake of someone or something that has nothing to do with us or benefits us or our church in any way. That's the challenge. The way you and I pray, do you realize it is an indication of where our hearts are? The way you pray, the way I pray, it is a, it's, a, it's just an indicator. Are we still on track as a church for God's plans, God's vision, God's purpose for us, for our city, for our community, for our friends in the workplace, in our world? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to ask God to make us bolder. We're going to ask God, would you just stretch forth your hand? And God, would you just do something in and through me that would cause people, especially unbelievers around me, to just say, wow, there's God. I didn't believe He existed. Now I do. And I want him to do for me what he's done for you. So what we're going to do, we're going to close our service by praying this prayer together. And here's why I believe this is so important. You are a Christian today. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Because the first century church, first century Christians, and every century since prayed big, bold prayers. Chances are the kind of prayers being prayed by most churches and most Christians today wouldn't have even gotten the gospel out of the first century because a lot of our prayers are all focused around protect me, keep me safe, put a hedge of protection around me, bless me, prosper me. Don't let me skin my knee in Jesus' name, amen. That's how most Christians and most churches pray today. We're Americans, we're just safety conscious. But I'm afraid if it would have been up to us We would have never prayed the gospel out of the first century, but that can change. And that change can begin today. It can begin with me. It can begin with you. I'm responsible. You're responsible in this generation to hand off the gospel, to hand off the church in good condition to the next generation to continue what was started back then and has happened in every century, in every generation. We take that and we pass it on to the next. So I'm gonna invite Jason, the worship team, to come up. And we're just gonna pray this prayer together. And then you'll have an opportunity to take communion and we're gonna offer you an opportunity just to be anointed Uh, Here this morning, I'm just going to invite all of you just to stand here this morning. We're going to read this together twice. And then we're going to pick up here uh, next week. Prayers up there on the screen. I'm just going to ask you just to pray this with me together out loud. Are you ready? Here we go. Father, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. I feel a little weird. I mean, it might feel a little weird to you, but that's okay. That's all right. We're going to do it one more time. Are you ready? Father, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. That is is our prayer. That was the prayer of the first church. It's been the prayer of every church going forward. That is a big, bold, audacious prayer. And I want God to answer that prayer in your life, in the life of this church. I want that prayer to shake us and to shake our community. So we're going to do just to close, as we just close in worship, you'll have an opportunity to come up and just to celebrate communion, again, kind of just to seal the deal with God. God, I want more boldness. We're also going to give you an opportunity here this morning that we're going to just have a couple of people here. We've got some anointing oil, and we just want to anoint you this morning, and we want to just speak the word, the prayer of boldness over you and over your life. So if you want to be anointed, if you really want God to just instill his spirit and his boldness in you this morning, just come and and they're just going to anoint you and they're just going to pray over you. So what I'm going to do here is, Jim, I'm going to have Ryan be with you. Janie, Evan is going to be with you up here. I want you, I just feel like God wants to use them this morning, so I'm just going to go with that, and I want you to show them what to do. Let them do the anointing, and you guys speak the word, the prayer, the affirmation of boldness over them. Father, we just thank you so much this morning. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your presence in this place. Father, we thank you, Lord, for that church that Jesus came to birth over 2,000 years ago, that movement that he came to launch. And Father, we see how you used the prayers of that first church to just impact the kingdom of God to explode upon the earth. And Father, we want those same prayers to achieve those same effects. Not just inside this church, but outside in our community, in our city, in our workplaces, in our families. Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would come and just fill and just instill us with your spirit. That, God, you would come and fill us with great boldness. To just go and to be your witness and to proclaim the very simple yet very profound message of Jesus Christ, resurrection from The dead, and that you have come to give us and to fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Father, just empower us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you